And um, when you're at 15, normally I wouldn't read a text this long, but I'm going to do it anyway, so stand up um, as we, well, if you're physically able, of course, um, as I publicly read God's word. And so I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and this is what the text says. It says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now, the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions." But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring, from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just uh, thank you so much that you give us your word, that you give us the book of Genesis, which lays the foundation for us, not only of, of reality, but also of redemptive history as we start to see it playing out in the life of Abram or Abraham. And I just pray, God, that you would give us all eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, God, that you would remove me as much as possible from this, God. That way it'll just be your word going to your people, God, that from looking at this and studying this, we would learn to trust you more and be led by you more and really understand and grasp the fact that you are the great promise keeper. So we just pray all of this to you. We pray if anybody doesn't know you, they'll be saved by hearing your word. And we pray that your own people will grow to be more like Jesus by hearing your word. We pray in everything you get all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So as, as humans, we know that, that, that when someone says he or she is going to do something, we expect them to follow through, don't we? And people expect that from us too. But whenever we attach the word promise to what we say, well, it's even bigger, isn't it? See, when, when someone makes a promise, it's like they're saying that, look, you don't have to simply trust what I'm saying or the fact that I'm saying I'll do this, but you need to trust the fact that I'm telling you this is a promise. I'm putting myself and my reputation on the line to make sure I do this thing. 
And that's why when someone breaks a promise, it hurts a lot more than if they just don't follow through on their word, right? And we've all experienced this, right? I'm sure we have. Broken promises hurt more because we place more faith in them. We place more faith and expectation in a promise than we do in somebody's mere word. And so if they break their promise, it feels like your faith was for nothing. You got your hopes up for nothing, and it's very discouraging. Well, sadly, because we've mostly experienced broken promises from people, we sometimes live in a way where we don't trust God's promises. Sure, we'll say with our mouth that we trust his promises, but do we really? And so our text this evening covers this subject of God, the promise keeper. And really, should we trust him, right? God made a promise to a man in our text, right? Actually, a few, few chapters before this. But it's been a long time. So the man begins to doubt. But here's the thing. God is not like people who break their promises. And that is what we're going to see in our text this evening. One of the most important promises ever made is addressed in our text. And God does show us that he's a promise keeper. So for the note takers, the point of the text is just that. It's that God keeps his promises. Therefore, we can trust him. Okay, it's not good enough just to say God keeps his promises. This calls for you to do something. It's to trust him. God keeps all of his promises, therefore we can trust him, and we must trust him. And that's what we're going to see tonight. Now, as we get into the text this evening, we are continuing the biblical account of the patriarch Abraham, who at this point is still called Abram. Now, we first met him at the end of chapter 11, when the next major section of Genesis began. Then at the start of chapter 12, God called Abram in such a way Okay, in such a way that it was clear two things happened. First, God made a covenant with a human being that was now going to drive the rest of history. Okay, Genesis 12 is a turning point in history. Okay, the second thing we see with that is the words that God used in the call of Abram signaled that God was now beginning to make moves that would reverse the curse. Right? God is signaling through Abram and through these promises that he's going to fix everything that Adam broke. And this fix, this repair job, starts with the call of Abram. Okay? It's not going to be fixed through Abram, but it starts with the call of Abram. And so how did Abram respond to the call? He responded very faithfully at first. He left the safety of his father's clan, and he moved down to the land that God promised him. Once he was there, he built a series of altars of God that symbolically pointed us back to the Garden of Eden and also proleptically pointed forward to our final reconciliation with God. Abram, when he built those altars, he called on God's name, which means Abram was all in at that point. But then we saw that faith was tested. A famine hit the land of Canaan and Abram faltered. He went down to Egypt and he put his wife in danger. In fact, he was such a coward, he made her into an adulteress. Now, at this low point, you would hope he would snap out of it, but he didn't. So God intervened and rescued both her and Abram from Egypt. And all that pointed forward to what God was going to do later with the nation that would come from Abram, the nation of Israel. They too would be delivered from Egypt in the future. Now, after Abram's failure, but God's rescue job there, Abram does turn back to God. He goes back to that altar he built in between Bethel and Ai. 
And there he calls on the name of the Lord again. He's recommitting himself, which shows us when we fall hard, there's always a way back, right? It's, it's going back to where, where we were. It's, we turn around, we repent, we return to God. So after Abram returns to God, now another test of faith came. Abram's nephew, Lot, had his possessions and his shepherds started fighting with Abram's shepherds. And so Abram has to figure out what to do. And he puts his faith in God's promises and he puts his love of his nephew ahead of any desire to put himself first. And so what Abram does is he chooses to stay in the land that God promised and Lot chooses to go to the wicked city of Sodom. And that poor choice by Lot now creates another test, an even harder test for Abram. See, what we saw in chapter 14 was a coalition of superpowers. Some, some ancient pirate kings invaded Canaan in order to punish Sodom and some of the other cities because they tried to assert their independence from those superpowers. In that scenario, Sodom lost, they got plundered, and many of its people were stolen. Lot was among them. So when Abram hears that his nephew's been kidnapped by these powerful kings and their massive armies, Abram's got a choice. What's he going to do? Will he let Lot suffer his consequences? I mean, Lot kind of deserves it, right? Or will Abram love his neighbor as himself? Will he apply the golden rule? Where he, will he do for Lot what he would want others to do for himself if he were in that situation? And he's going to do what's right. He's going to do the golden rule, right? He passes the test. He chooses to go after his nephew, even though the odds were almost impossible odds. With 318 well-trained men, Abram has his, what I call, an Aragorn moment, where he chases, chases after a much larger army, and he slaughters them and their kings. That also pointed forward to other things we'll see in the Bible. When Gideon does this, but then he fails as a judge, but then later David does this to the Amalekites, same kind of thing, and David ends up being the faithful king. All of that ultimately points forward to Jesus, who's the perfect king that the Bible tells us he took captivity captive, right? So all that is also pointing forward. And the point was Abram rescued his nephew. He then afterward was tempted with wealth and all this stuff from a wicked king, from the king of Sodom, and he rejected it. He rejected any reward or alliance with this evil king of Sodom. Then Abram recognized there's a priest of the most high God in the area, Melchizedek. And Abram honors him and gives him 10% of the spoils. And there was so much stuff I said about Melchizedek last time that if I repeated it, we wouldn't get to our text this morning. So if you weren't here for that, you could go find it on Sermon Audio. There was so much gold there, okay? But pretty much that's where we left off last time. So Abram's at a high point. After his big failure in Egypt, he repented, he recommitted himself to God, and he's been making a lot of good decisions in light of that ever since. We've definitely seen growth in his faith and maturity. But there's a reality that I keep bringing up in these Genesis sermons, right? And it's a reality that is perfectly captured by Proverbs 13, 12. It says, hope delayed makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And ain't, we know that's true, right? Hope delayed makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. God promised Abram that he would have many descendants. A great nation would be made from him. Now, God first made that promise when Abram was already well over the hill. He was 75 years old, according to chapter 12, verse 4. 
And by the time God's going to give Abram this promised child, he's going to be 100 years old, according to Genesis 17.1. It says he's 99 years old, and then it's, God tells him by this time next year, so he'd be 100, you're going to have this kid. So think about that. That's 25 years between the time the promise was made and the promise was fulfilled. And even though Abram's been doing well, it's been some time since the promise was made by the time we get to chapter 15. See, the promise is going to be fulfilled 15 years after the events of our text this morning. So that means Abram's been waiting 10 years since the promise was made. He was 75 when it was given. He's 85 by the time we get to chapter 15. So that's hope delayed. Being an already really old man and being told you're going to have a child, and 10 years later you haven't had that child, that is hope delayed that can make the heart sick. And it's from that standpoint that I think we need to kind of understand Abram's mindset because it'll help us understand his actions. It'll help us understand his words in this chapter, and it'll help us understand his actions in the next chapter, which I'll get to next time. So with that, let's look at chapter 15. This is where God will reassure Abram, and there's a lot of great things we're going to see in chapter 15. So look at verse 1. It begins. It says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So let's quickly get the setting right. It says, after these events. Which events? The events of chapter 14. Okay? Abram's just done this really bold and brave move when he chased those kings down and defeated them. It's after that. It's on the heels of that victory, that God-given victory, that God now is coming to Abram. And it tells us he comes to him in a vision, which is significant, because what that tells us is that Abram's a prophet. This is Moses' way of telling us Abram's a prophet because God speaks to prophets in visions. Later in chapter 20, verse 7, God himself will tell Abimelech that Abram is his prophet. Okay? So it's first signaled here. And what does God say to his prophet here? The rest of verse 1 tells us. God says this, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now, it's kind of interesting, right? The statement, do not fear, is contrasted with the bravery he just showed in the previous chapter. He doesn't seem like a guy who's afraid. And yet, apparently, Abram's fearing something. That's why God tells him not to fear. So what would Abram fear after such a victory? I think there's two things that are kind of obvious here. First, God appeared to him in a dream. I'm pretty sure he feared God. Even when you see God in visionary forms, the people in the Bible are terrified because God is God and we're not. So I'm pretty sure God's saying, don't worry, I come with good news. You don't have to be freaking out. And I think the second thing that Abram's worrying about or fearing is that God's not going to keep his promise, right? And I think that becomes kind of obvious when we get to verse 2 based on what Abram says, how he responds to God. But before we get to verse 2, it is worth noting that in verse 1, God says some pretty reassuring things. He says, I am your shield. The word shield is magain. It is, it is the same root word that Melchizedek used when he declared that God delivered Abram from his enemies. So Melchizedek uses the verb, uh, which is megan, and here God's using the noun, which is magain. Okay, but the point is the noun is shield, the verb is delivered. And so what God is saying is that I'm your shield by delivering you. He delivers us by being our shield, by protecting us and destroying our enemies, right? 
And after God says this to Abram, I'm your shield, shield will be one of the most frequent descriptions used by Israel of their God. And it's for that reason the Star of David is called the Magen David, the shield of David. It's not, the word doesn't actually mean star, it means shield. But anyhow, it's because we see, we Israelites see God as our shield and it starts right here. So God is their deliverer and their shield. Now, because of that, because God delivers Abram and is his shield, he says, quote, your reward will be very great. Now, there's debate of how to translate that. Is God promising great rewards or is God declaring that he himself is the reward, the great reward? The Hebrew could go either way. And I think both are true. So you don't have to fight it, right? You don't have to argue about it. We will inherit God, but God's also going to give us a lot of cool stuff on top of it. So... Imagine being Abram at this point. You just defeated these kings, and you were just blessed by Melchizedek, which is God's high priest. And then God himself shows up to encourage you. And he starts off by saying, I've got you, Abram. I shield and deliver you. I will reward you. I'll give you myself. I'll give you all that I promised. Well, Abram's response to such an encouraging statement is going to show us that he's not all right. That Abram is not all right. The hope delayed has definitely made his heart sick. And what's interesting is this is the first time that we have Abram talking to God in the Bible. The previous passages have God talk to him, commands him, he blesses him. And then Abram simply responds with action, with obedience. But now we're seeing Abram's words. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 says this. It says, but Abram said, Lord God. What can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. And you know, if I was not familiar with the text, I would not have expected that to be Abram's response. After what God says in verse one, I'm your shield, your reward's great. I think his response would be like, cool, thanks. But that's not his response. He's questioning God. And there's a little bit of bitterness behind it. And listen, God doesn't bite his head off, which is very encouraging. When God saves you, he's forging a relationship with you. And as that relationship grows, there are going to be times where you're going to ask God the questions that trouble you. And that's what we're seeing here. What this is showing us is Abram is now unsure of God's promises. Even though God protected him in Egypt, and even though God protected him against these kings, it's still easy to lose heart. I know we we would look at him and say, he must be crazy. God did all this stuff, and now he's doubting. Come on, how many times have you been on the top of the mountain, and you know God's been with you, you've experienced his power, and like a week later, you're not even falling into regular sin, you're falling into even worse sin. Like, how did I get here? Okay, if it can happen to you, it can happen to Abram. Right? He's beginning to lose heart. Okay? So Abram boldly says, what can you give me, God? I'm childish, childless, and I'm old. Whatever you give me is not going to go to me or my descendants, okay? but instead it's going to go to my slave. And by the way, this custom of making a servant your heir 
Okay? In the case of you being childless, this was a common practice back then. In fact, it was, uh, there are examples of this in these ancient texts called the Nuzi tablets, which were discovered in the 1930s. They come from where Abram was originally from. So this is the type of custom he was used to. And I just bring that up because like 100 years ago, you know how the liberal scholars are. There's no evidence that any type of person would ever let their slave be their heir. And then somebody digs something out of the ground and say, whoa, they all did this all the time. They never learn. The point is, the Bible is historically accurate. So Abram is ready to use this normal custom of his day to leave everything to his servant. The fact that he did that meant he was doubting God's promise of an heir. And Abram says it in a way that blames God. If you look, he says, look. I mean, I I couldn't imagine being like, look, God. But he's like, look, you've given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir, end quote. In other words, this isn't what I want to do. I don't want my slave to be my heir, but you've given me no son. You're the only one who could do this. I'm old and my wife is old, and you've given me no son. Now, again, all that sounds disrespectful, but it actually isn't as bad as you might think. Abram's not being an ingrate here or a typical American narcissist or anything like that. He's not whining, saying, God, what have you done for me lately? Oh, not enough. I don't know if I'm going to follow you. That's not what's happening here, right? Instead, he's questioning God with God's own promises, right? If God never made the promise, Abram would not be questioning him. But God is the one who said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. God made the promise. And it's actually faithful to expect God to keep his promises. It means you believe he can. After all, he is God. And God actually likes it when we have such faith that he could keep his promises that we will then come to him and say, God, keep your promises, right? It happens all the time in the Psalms, all the time. They'll wrestle with God like you promised this, but I'm looking around and I'm not seeing it. I don't understand. But then by the end, they always rest in their confidence. But we know you're God. You're going to do what you said you're going to do, right? And so this means that Abram's statement isn't faithless. Instead, it's him saying, God, I'm still waiting on you. You promise a great reward. You just said your reward is great. But without the offspring that you've already promised, I can't see how a reward's going to work out in the long run, okay? And God's not mad about this. God knows we are dust. He knows we're weak. God knows that we experience everything discursively. That's your your million-dollar word for the night, discursive, right? We experience things discursively. That means we learn and experience things in time, right, on a timeline. We don't know, like you don't know, everything you know now, you didn't know 20 years ago. You're learning in time, and it it grows. And so God knows we learn that way. He knows that we haven't arrived, right? And so all of this is meant to teach us how to increasingly depend on God. I mean, an 85-year-old man starting to doubt that he could ever have kids isn't so far-fetched. But God is using this scenario to get Abram to trust him more, to believe more, to depend on him more, to expect the impossible more. And he'll grow into this just like we will. It's meant to teach us how to wrestle with God and wrestle with his promises. And then in the end, we'll be able to say like the sons of Korah in Psalm 46, verses 2 and 3, they say, though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its water roars and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil, meaning even if the world explodes, I'm still going to trust the Lord. And why? He says, because there is a river that makes glad the city of God. 
In other words, God has a reward for us. Everything could go kaput in this life, in this world for us. But if we trust God, then we know, we know it's all going to be okay in the end. So we must increasingly learn to trust God. And, and that's all God is doing to Abram here. And God wants to help him. So in verse 4, he's going to tell Abram that he's got it wrong. Let's take a look at verse 4. It says, now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. In other words, Abram, my friend, I'm going to keep the promise. It's one from your body that's going to be your heir. I'm going to give you offspring. There will be a child of promise. And then to reinforce this, God wants to give him a visual illustration. So he's going to tell Abe to go do something. Look at verse 5. It says, he took him outside and said, look at the sky. Count the stars if you're able to count them. <clears throat> then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Look at the stars, buddy. Can you count them? No, neither will you be able to count all the descendants that will come from you. And the funny thing is this is a small room with only a handful of people. And in this room, there's three descendants from Abram in this room right now. So God fulfilled his promise. But again, Abram doesn't know that yet. Okay, So I guess the question is, after God says that, what's Abram now thinking? After God says, no, I'm going to make your son your heir, and you're going to have so many descendants, you can't count them. After hearing God make that promise, is the heart of Abram still sick from the hope delayed? Or does the word of God itself reinforce the promise, and now it's like a tree of life? Well, verse 6 answers. And verse 6 is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. It says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, there's a lot I'll have to break down on that. I mean, Paul is going to quote this verse four times. James will quote it once. I mean, this is a huge deal. The entire doctrine of justification is built on this verse. And notice what it says, right? It says, Abram believed the Lord. In fact, this is the first time that the word believe or faith is used in the Bible. First time is this verse. It's the Hebrew word aman. And even though it's the first time we see the word, we've seen the action of faith throughout Genesis though, right? When Seth and his sons began to call on the name of the Lord, that was the action of faith. When Noah built his ark, it was faith in action. When Abram answered the God's call and built those altars, it was faith in action. Well, now we're being told what we've already seen, right? There's a word for this. It's called believes. It's called trust. It's called faith. And notice it's not saying that Abram believes in God. That's easy to do, right? You have to brainwash yourself to not believe in God. Kids naturally assume there's a God all over the world. In, you know, atheist communist countries, they have to be brainwashed to not believe in God. Because everybody looks around, we naturally know this. Believing in God's not the hard thing. What this says is Abram believed God. It's a whole different ball game, right? That means not only did he believe in God, which is easy, okay, you just got to look around, but it says he believed God. He believed what God told him. He believed that God is his shield. He believed his reward would be great. He believed that God would give an 85-year-old man offspring. He believed that God would make his name great and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. He believed it because God said it. That's faith. So think about that. 
You often hear people saying, well, I'll believe it if I could see it. Abram believed it because God said it. That's faith. That's faith. If you're waiting to see it to believe, it's not saving faith, right? True faith is I believe it because God said it. I trust him. Sure, it sounds impossible, but he's God. So I believe that's saving faith. Faith is trusting God and actually living your life in light of that trust, okay? It's not just believing facts about God. It's not just a posture of your mind only. Faith is a belief at your very core that directs your entire life and what you do. And you could think of anything you believe, it affects what you do, right? So, for example, if you believe that you're mortal and you can die if somebody crashes into you, you stop at a red light, right? You don't cross the yellow lines when other cars are coming. Your belief that I can die, direct, it affects what you do. Well, likewise, saving faith in God is going to lead to works. It's going to affect what you do. And so if that's what faith is, then if it's something that is at your very core and directs your entire life because you trust God, then what is the result of that faith? Well, God here, it says that God credited this to Abram as righteousness. So we have to ask a second question. We know what faith is. What's righteousness? Well, in Hebrew, it's the word sadakah, and this word means a lot of things, okay? Uh, some will pronounce it sadaka, which is probably easier, probably better to say, um, tomato, tomato. Uh, but, but this word in Hebrew, it means a lot of things. It means law-keeping. It means justice. It means doing acts of justice and mercy. It covers a very broad range. Ultimately, it's, it's summed up by the idea of keeping God's standards perfectly. If you keep God's standards perfectly all the time, you're righteous. If you don't, you're not righteous. You're unrighteous, okay? And a synonym for unrighteous is wicked, okay? So if that is what righteousness is, keeping God's standards all the time perfectly, then is righteousness the same thing as faith based on those definitions? No. I just described two very different things. Faith is when you trust God with all your heart. Righteousness is when you live a perfectly godly life. Two different things, okay? Believing God is not the same as living a perfect life. I believe God, but I don't live a perfect life, okay? Yet what the text is telling us is that the righteousness, that righteousness was credited to Abram because he believed God, okay? And so if you think of Abram at this point, has he been perfectly righteous? No, just think of chapter 12. Will he be perfectly righteous after this moment? Just wait till the next chapter. He's going to mess up big time. He's going to be very much like Adam in the next chapter. Okay? And yet, God has just credited Abram with righteousness, with perfect, keeping God's standards perfectly. And this is 14 years before Abram gets circumcised. This is over two decades before Abram passes the test of being willing to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. And of course, Abram's been showing this faith long before even chapter 15. He's been showing it since chapter 12. So this faith has been there since God called him. And so what it means is if Abram believed and God credited it to him as righteousness, it means that when God saves someone, it is not by their own righteousness. Because Abram's not righteous. 
It's not by their own righteousness. It's by an alien righteousness. Not aliens and spaceships. They're not real. Okay, alien, I mean it's not from you. It's from outside of you. It's not your own righteousness. It's a righteousness outside of you that gets reckoned to you. And notice it's passive. It was credited to Abram, meaning it's not his own, and he's not the one who seized it. It's just given to him. Now, the interesting thing is in Genesis chapter 26, verse 5, it says Abram kept God's laws, commandments, and statutes. And yet this was 400 years before God's law with the statutes and commandments was given. So how is it possible? How could God say that Abram kept the law before the law was given? It's because God credited Abram with the keeping of his perfect standards before those standards were ever even revealed. And so that then raises a question for us. Where does this righteousness come from? For a human to get credit of righteousness, it must be a human righteousness where a human obeys God perfectly all the time. Well, at this point in redemptive history, where that comes from, who was able to do that, has not been revealed yet. And yet, nevertheless, there's righteousness that's been credited to Abram. Now, we know the answer. We live on the other side of this, right? So we know the answer. It comes from Jesus, who died for our sins and was raised for our justification to declare us righteous. Now, what's interesting is God would impute that righteousness to people before Christ ever earned it in real time. Think about that. For him to justify Abram 2,000 years before Christ earned the righteousness means God can give that credit before Christ even did it. Now, why? It's because God, one, exists outside of time. Two, God has exhaustive knowledge. Jesus fulfilling that righteousness was not a maybe. It was as real in God's mind before it happened as it was after it happened. And therefore, God could take what he knew is real with his perfect, exhaustive knowledge, and he could impute it to Abram before Christ even ever came down and earned it. In the same way he could impute righteousness uh, to Abram that was going to come 2,000 years later, he could impute that same righteousness to us 2,000 years after the fact. It's because God is God, and he can do that. He has the ability to credit righteousness, and it's not conditioned upon time. What it is conditioned upon is Christ, the work of Christ, okay? And so when people ask, how did God save people in the Old Testament? The answer is he credits them with Jesus's righteousness in the same way he does for us. And he does this not by works, but by faith, okay? But given the real definition of faith, faith always will lead to works, okay? That's why Paul and James are not in disagreement with each other about how someone gets justified. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith. But that real faith instantly leads to works. They happen at the same time, practically. And so you could talk about them happening at the same time. But it's on the basis of the faith, not the works, that God declares us righteous. So this then leads to another question, the question of the content of faith. To be justified, you have to believe what God revealed, okay? Well, some people say, well, no, no, it's more than that. The people in the Old Testament had to believe exactly what we believe now. They had to know all the details of the gospel. They had to know that his name is Jesus Christ. They had to know that he came from a virgin, that he, he died and he raised. They, they, like Abram would have to know what we know. That's the only way he could be justified. He'd have to have the, the full gospel. But that's not what the text says. 
Okay, you got to let the text speak. What did Abram believe? God said, I'm your shield. I'm going to fulfill the promise. I'm going to give you an heir. Abram hears that and believes that and is credited to him as righteousness, right? So pretty much those were justified by faith, but you're justified by faith in what God has revealed. Abram didn't know what we know. And some people try to, to speculate and say, well, maybe he did. But I think Paul puts this to rest for us in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. When he's talking about the justification of Abraham, he makes it clear what Abram believed and then compares it to what we believed because it's technically different. It says of Abram, he believed, hoping against hope so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken, so your descendants will be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since it was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited, credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, do you see what Paul did there? He made it clear that Abram believed what God promised Abram, that even though you're old and your body's as good as dead, you're going to have this, this, this promised child. God's going to do what he said. Abram believed that God was able to do what he said, and so it was credited to him as righteousness. And then Paul says it wasn't written just for him, but also for us. We believe what? We believe that Jesus died for us and was raised for us, and that's how we're credited righteousness. You get what I'm saying? Okay, Abram didn't believe exactly what we believe because he didn't know it, but he did believe what God told him. And now that we're on the other side of the cross, we have to believe what God has told us in the whole Bible. We have to believe the, the full gospel, and it's credited to us as righteousness. So anyhow, the point is Abram believed what God told him, so God justifies him. And that means Abram's sins are then forgiven, and he's given the credit for Jesus' later perfect righteousness. Well, I think that would be enough to excite Abraham, or Abram at this point. But God's going to even add to this by what he says in verse 7. He's, he, there's more. So if you look at verse 7, it says this. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now what is interesting is this is almost exactly identical in form to what God says to Israel in Exodus chapter 20 verse 2. And so I'm going to read that real quick. And this is just as God's giving the covenant to Israel. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the place of slavery. Compare that to what we just read. I'm the Lord your God who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans, right, to give you this land to possess. It's God more or less beginning a covenant. This is how he starts off a covenant is with a declaration like this, okay? And even though the covenant was announced in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it's actually enacted in our text today because we see an actual covenant ritual and it will use the word covenant in our text as we get a little further. See, God promised Abram offspring, and Abram believed. And it tells us that God then reckoned Abram as righteous. That would be enough for sure, but now God wants to add more. He's saying, I took your life out of paganism to give you this land, not just offspring, but this land, okay? 
Okay, so not only will you have offspring and not only do you have salvation, but you're going to inherit the land of Canaan. And so that's a lot to take in. And that's why verse 8, if you look at it, Abram's going to ask God a question. It says, but he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? Now, look, this isn't the same despairing tone anymore that he had in verse 2. It's almost a tone of wonder, like the land too. Hey, how am I going to know that I'm going to get it? You know, thank you for the promise, but, but, but yeah, how, how am I going to know this will happen? And God's answer is fascinating. God could have said, because I said so. But that's not what happens here. Look at verse 9. It says, he said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, to American modern ears, that is a very strange answer, isn't it? God, how will I know you'll give my descendants this land? Abram, go grab three animals and two birds. I mean, again, you hear that and you're like, I don't get it. Um, but Abram knew exactly what was going on here. He knew what this was. Not only does Abram bring the animals, he instantly starts doing something with them because he knew what to do with them. Look at verse 10. It says, so he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Okay, so Abram knows what he's supposed to do. He grabs the animals, he sacrifices them, he cuts them in half, places one side here, one side there to make a pathway between them. He doesn't cut the birds, but maybe one bird's on this side and one bird's on that side. And he makes a path that people could walk between. So again, you may be wondering, all right, that's God's answer. What's going on here? Well, let me help with something common to us first. I've watched Judge Judy for a long time. At first, not by choice. My wife would have it on the TV, and I couldn't wrestle the control from her. But over the course of time, I actually started liking it. I can't believe I admitted that. And I lost count of how many times a dummy goes on national TV whining that someone owes them something, and then Judge Judy asks, did you get it in writing? right? Is there a contract? And then the people stare at the camera blinking for like five seconds as if their brain stopped working. It's like, really? You went on TV for that? All you need is some drool, okay? And so then when their brain starts working again, they say, no, judge, but I swear the person made this promise. And to that, she always replies, how do I know that? I wasn't there. It's your word against their word. And because it's just hearsay, you can't prove what you're saying. So I can't make them give you the money. And then she dismisses the case. I've seen it play out way too many times. I've also seen the opposite. A person will deny that they owe someone. And so then Judge Judy will ask the other person, hey, well, did you get this in writing? And the other person will say, yes, I got the contract right here. She'll then read the contract. And then she'll tell the other person that you do owe the money. And it's amazing. They'll look at the camera and blink too for about, you know, five awkward seconds. And then when their brain fires back on, they'll give 10 reasons why they shouldn't have to pay, but she still makes them pay because there's a contract, right? Now, my point with all this is a contract obligates both parties to fulfill their end of the deal. So what does that have to do with our text? Well, they didn't have contracts back then. They had something even stronger. They were called covenants. Covenants were a lot more serious. Today, you sign a contract. Back then, you cut a covenant. And by the way, whenever the Bible says he made a covenant, the literal Hebrew is he cut a covenant because something dies. Something gets cut every time. And so what does the cutting refer to? 
Both parties would sacrifice valuable animals to show the seriousness of the agreement. They would then create this, this path to walk between the dead animal parts. And then what they would declare is that if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I become like these animals. In other words, it places a curse and death sentence on someone that breaks the covenant. So if you break a contract, you're going to get sued. If you broke a covenant back then, you die. A little more serious. I think people kept their word a little more back then um, because the consequences were greater if they didn't. Okay, But it's putting a curse on you. May I die and be ripped to shreds like these animals. Now, this was a very common practice back then. We've found ancient documents that have versions of this that date back to the time of Abram. And it continued for quite some time, about 1,500 years, to the, all the way to Jeremiah the prophet's time. And it's interesting because Jeremiah actually records this practice for us. In Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 through 20, he's condemning Israel for not keeping their end of the bargain. And, and look what he says. He says, as for those who disobeyed my covenant, not keeping the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two in order to pass between its pieces. The officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the pieces of the calf, all these I will hand over to their enemies, to those who intend to take their life. Their corpses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the wild animals of the land. Again, an interesting passage. Now, when somebody would make a covenant like this and they would walk through the animal parts, there would also be witnesses and they would also record it on stone or, or something like that, depending on what the normal type of thing they wrote on. They had tablets back then as well. They were just real tablets. Um, and so, so getting back to the point, as soon as God told Abram to grab these animals. Abram knew what to do. It's common practice. He cut them up. He made the paths. If I were him, I would have been terrified at this point. Okay, He would assume that God's going to make him walk through the path. That would mean if Abram fails to keep the covenant, he'd be cursed and killed. Well, Abram's already failed once, and I'm pretty sure he probably figures he will fail again. So this probably sounded like a death sentence on one hand, but who's Abram to say no to God? So he grabs the animals and he prepares everything for the covenant. But I would think also on the other hand, there's some hope mixed with fear because Abram can't forget that this is all in a result to him asking a question. He asked God, how will I know my descendants will get the land? And then God says, go grab this stuff that you use to make a covenant, to make the most serious guarantee. So God's reassuring him with a ritual common in his day but at the same time, it'd be a scary reassurance if Abram has to walk in between those animals as well. And verse 11 also adds an interesting detail. It makes no sense to be there unless it, it has greater significance than what it says. It says, birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Okay? Of course, you know, birds of prey come down on dead animals. Uh, you would assume that. And so scholars point out some interesting things here. We've already seen in Genesis so far that Abram's life is like, it shows an abbreviated history of Israel. Like Israel's history is encapsulated in Abram's life. And so that would be one more example of how God unfolds history and prophecy through types and shadows. And what I mean is we saw Abram already go down to Egypt. 
Okay, we saw God put plagues on Pharaoh and his household, and then Abram left with plunder, right? That foreshadows the exodus. We also saw that God uses the same language for bringing Israel out of Egypt when he starts a covenant with them as he uses for bringing Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans. And by the way, he's going to bring Israel out of the land of the Chaldeans as well. Because what, where do they get exiled? To Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, right? And so a lot of their history is encapsulated in the life of, of, of Abram. So with that in mind, the Old Testament, so keep that all in mind, right? In the Old Testament, and many times it describes the nations as birds of prey that attack Israel. If you look it up, you'll find it in the prophets a lot, okay? Israel's enemies are compared to birds. And in the Jeremiah passage, I just read that has this very ritual. It says that the dead Israelites will be given to their enemies. That's how they die. But also, there'll be corpses eaten by the birds, okay? This is foreshadowing the covenant, right? It's foreshadowing. So people, scholars see this as a foreshadowing of the covenant, protecting Abram's descendants in the future from the nations. Kind of like Abram back in chapter 4 defended Lot from the nations, Abram pushing those birds away signifies prophetically that God through the covenant also means to ultimately protect Israel from the nations. The animals on the ground represent the nation of Israel, and then Abram being a good priest-like figure drives away the birds, which represents the evil nations, right? Now, given the connection of this ritual here with what we see in the Jeremiah passages and all the times where the prophets keep talking about the nations being birds of prey coming after Israel, it seems that that makes the best sense out of a detail that otherwise doesn't need to be in the text. And given that we've already seen that Abram's life seems to be a, a, a microcosm of Israel's history, it just makes sense. But apart from that detail, let's get back to the overall thrust of this. Abram knows that a covenant's being cut between him and God. It would be terrifying to have to walk between the animals knowing what failure would mean. And that's where verse 12 now ends up subverting our expectations. Because if you're an ancient Near Eastern person reading this, your expectation is like, oh, Abram's going to walk through it. Look at verse 12. It says, as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. In other words, before Abram could ever walk through the path, God knocks him out. And this word for deep sleep, taradama, is the same word used for the sleep that God put on Adam when he cut Adam open in order to make Eve, to make the covenant of marriage, right? And so same word, knocks him out, there's a cutting, there's all this kind of stuff, and there's a covenant, right? And so again, this is all signaling there's a covenant, and this deep sleep makes it impossible for Abram to walk the path. Yet Abram could still apparently hear God he could hear God speak, and he could see what God is going to do in that path, right? So with Abram unable to walk, unable to complete his end of the covenant process, all he could do is listen and look. And so first he listens. He hears what God has to say. Look at verses 13 through 16. It says this. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. 
In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay, now, the verse before this tells us a great terror and darkness descended on him. That fact lets us know that the message Abram was going to hear was going to be somber. It was going to be serious. Abram wants to know how he will know that God will give his descendants the land. God's now answering, it's not going to happen in your lifetime, Abraham, or Abram at this point. You will go to your ancestors in peace. You will be buried at a good old age, my friend. You don't have to worry about this. But your descendants will be outside of the promised land for 400 years. They're going to be enslaved and oppressed. But I will then judge that oppressing nation, and your descendants will come out with much plunder. This is what God's telling him. Now, of course, all of this invites the question of why. Like, why not just give us the land without all of that drama? Well, the answer to that question of why is complicated. First, God has entered history to save people in real time. And because he does so in history, in real time, God uses history as a vehicle itself to teach all generations about salvation. So think about it. A long slavery for Israel. A slavery that you're born into. One that you are powerless on your own to escape. It paints a strong picture of an even worse slavery for all mankind. Slavery to sin and slavery to death. You're born into it and you are powerless to escape it. The world, its pagans, its psychologists, everything always say that salvation comes from within. Look within for deliverance. You can't. You're a slave and you were born into it. And so God is telling us through history, through redemptive history, that no, salvation comes outside of yourself. It comes when the God who makes these amazing promises decides to act within real history to save real people. So the Exodus is meant to teach the whole world about final salvation. And it also teaches Israel that God is their God, right? Okay, it teaches everybody something. And as a result, it's fitting that an entire people are put in bondage for this. It's fitting then when they get delivered that a chosen deliverer will be born. It's fitting that they will try to kill this guy in his birth. It's fitting that he will later be a shepherd. It's fitting that God brings salvation through this man with signs and wonders as the oppressors are defeated. It's fitting that he then gives the redeemed people a covenant with God. It's fitting that he leads them for a lifetime almost of wandering in the wilderness before they get to enter the promised land. It's fitting because all of this points exactly to Jesus, but in a way far more fantastic than anything that came by Moses. All that stuff did happen in Moses, and it points to a much more real sense of it happening with Jesus. So one reason God is doing it this way is to teach us what it's going to look like when he saves people from all nations, from our greatest oppressors, sin and death. Another reason why God is going to do it this way is because the promised land has other inhabitants. In order for the land to go to Abram's descendants, the current residents will have to be displaced. Someone's going to lose so that someone else can gain. Well, listen, God is just. He's not going to just displace these people and give their home to somebody else for no reason. That's why if you look at verse 16, he says, In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. 
Now, let me just say quickly, the word generation back in Moses' time was used to refer, it's the Hebrew word door, it was used to refer to a lifetime. Around David's time, it came to refer to 40 years as they were looking back on the Exodus generation, okay? But for Moses, if he says four generations, he means ballpark 400 years. That's how long Israel will be out of the land. Again, why that long? Why 400 years? Because the wickedness of the current inhabitants has not reached the peak where God in his justice now says it is time for them to be judged and removed from the land. He gives them 400 years to repent, but in that 400 years, they pass a threshold. They fill up the measure of sin and wickedness in the land. And once they hit that point, then they deserve it. They deserve it. This isn't injustice anymore. This is God giving justice by having the sword of Israel go throughout the land and then new people, the Israelites, get to take the land. That's, that, that way God's salvation of Israel comes through the judgment of the nations. And again, that paints a picture going forward. That's how salvation is for us. Don't you realize you were saved by judgment? The judgment of Christ in your place on that cross. And then we know that our final salvation is also going to come through judgment as Jesus judges the nations, right? When he comes and rescues us from their oppression. Right now, they are filling the earth increasingly with their full measure of evil. And God knows our generation is seeing it worse than any before us. As the evil is mounting more and more, they are inventing new ways to do evil every day. Eventually, it's going to reach that capstone and God's like, that's it. And he's going to spew them from this earth. As he judges them, he saves us, and we will inherit a new heaven and a new earth, which will be an eternal promised land that we will never lose. So my point with this is, why is God doing it this way? Because it paints the picture, it creates the prophetic types and shadows and foreshadowing of what final salvation is going to look like. Okay? And it paints the picture so that we would know what the Messiah would look like and be like and what he would do when he gets here. And Jesus did all that. Okay? That's why God's doing it this way. So yeah, does it suck for those Israelites that have to go through that slavery? Yes, but it is for a much bigger purpose that God is superintending. So after hearing all that, Abram now realizes that some promises God makes are not meant to be fulfilled to the original audience. Part of God's promise to Abram will take four lifetimes. That is why I have no problem. Some people say any prophecy has to first go to its own generation. A lot of times, yes, but not always. The prophecies of Daniel were for, you know, hundreds of years later. And same with the prophecies of Revelation. Some were for the first century, but some of it's way in the future. And right here we see God does that. He tells Abram, I made this promise, but dude, 400 years. You're going to be dead long before this one gets fulfilled, okay? Sometimes God makes it clear we'll be waiting a while. Well, now that God has answered Abram's question, perhaps the expectation in Abram's mind is, I'm going to wake up, and now I've got to walk through these animal pieces. I'm in trouble. But that's not what happens. Look at verses 17 through 21. It says, When the sun had set, and it was dark, a smoking fire and pot, or smoking fire pot and flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Heathites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. 
Now, when he says from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River, it's the fullness of the land of Israel is what they're supposed to get. And God later will say this will be a permanent possession. Okay. Now, I want us to understand what just happened here, though. God alone walked through the pieces. He, Abram's still knocked out. He can't go through the pieces. God alone walked through the pieces. He is making the fulfillment of the promise rest on him alone. God will not let Abram walk through the pieces. This is an unconditional covenant. God is saying, I place this burden on myself alone. If I do not keep my promise, may I, the Lord, be cursed. May I, God, be ripped to shreds like these animals. So God is swearing by himself and calling a curse upon himself if he does not keep this promise. Now, you're probably thinking that's impossible. God can't die. God can't be cursed. God can't destroy himself. You're right. That's what makes this so significant. In the same way that it's impossible for God to be destroyed, it is also impossible for God not to keep his promise. It rests on him and him alone. God is putting his own character on the line. So he's telling Abram, how are you to know this will happen? Look, Abram, I walked through these animals. You know what this means, Abram. You know what this ritual means. That's how committed I am to this promise. And additionally, you know, perhaps God doesn't say this, but this is what happened, that God will have this whole event written down perfectly through the work of the Holy Spirit, writing it down through Moses, one of Abram's descendants. That way, not only is this something privately between God and Abram, but all humanity could be witnesses to this covenant because God inspires it to be written for all eyes to see. So God is saying, everyone's going to know I made this promise. I'm going to keep it. And later on in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, it reflects back on this event. And the author says that God swore on himself because there's nothing greater than himself by which he could swear. And it also says because of that, it's impossible for God to lie. He is going to keep this promise. So by God walking through these pieces, he promises to give Israel all the land as a permanent possession. And since God cannot lie, I believe this promise has a past, a present, and a future fulfillment. And it doesn't disappear because God's going to give all believers the whole world. He could give the nations the whole world, and he could still give Israel Israel. And I believe that's exactly what's going to happen because God walked through these parts. He cannot lie. What he says, he will do. Now, another thing that is interesting is that God passes through the animals as a smoking pot and a torch of fire. Now, right away, that's supposed to make you think of God as he leads Israel out of Egypt. He's a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then when he gives them the covenant on Mount Sinai and the ground is shaking, it's all in the midst of both smoke and fire. When God dwells among his people in the tabernacle and later the temple, it's after he descends as fire and then fills the Holy of Holies as smoke that the people of Israel know our God is dwelling in our midst. My point is these symbols, these forms that God chose to appear appear through, they're unmistakable. It is God, okay? It's God in some kind of physical form or appearance that is walking through these animals. It is no one else. God is the one who established the covenant, and because the covenant with Abram is a covenant of grace, it is the covenant that will find its ultimate fulfillment in an even better covenant of grace, which is the new covenant, okay? Now, you often hear us preach that all scripture is ultimately about Christ, which would mean even this one, and I've already showed you two ways this chapter points to Jesus. 
First, in order for Abram to be credited with human righteousness, it necessitated a perfect human that could transfer such righteousness to us. That perfect human is the God-man, Jesus Messiah, okay? So verse 6 demands a look forward to Jesus, right? And then the second way we've seen it is God establishes how he would fulfill the promise to Abram in such a way that it paints this broad picture of history, of greater salvation that's brought by Jesus. So we've seen him all in this. Well, there's a third way that this points to Jesus. God walked through the pieces. This falls on God alone. And yet here's the thing. Israel, as we saw in Jeremiah 34, will break the covenant that God later gives them that he later gives them through Moses. They'll break it all the time. And so in a sense, even though Abram didn't walk through the pieces, his nation, his descendants, they did have to walk through the pieces. And that covenant brought curses. Well, Jesus, even though he never broke the covenant, Jesus identifies as Israel in a single human body. Picture all of Israel now being, in a sense, represented by a single human body. Jesus is the individual servant that comes to save the corporate servant of God. The corporate servant in Isaiah is Israel. The individual servant is Jesus. So Jesus identifies with Israel. Therefore, he must absorb and take their curse upon himself. He ends up smitten with the curse of the broken Mosaic covenant. The Torah of Moses or the law of Moses predicted the old covenant's failure to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Why? Because in Abraham's covenant, he didn't walk through the pieces. In Israel's covenant, in a sense, they do. Or in the Mosaic covenant, they do. And they can't uphold their end because they're sinners. Okay? And so here's the thing, right? It points to the need of a new covenant that will make it to where the Abrahamic covenant gets fulfilled. But the new doesn't do this by replacing the old. The new does this in continuity with the old. And what I mean is Jesus, as the embodiment of Israel, suffers the curse of the old covenant in order to fulfill it. And once he does, this then brings about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant because it inaugurates the new covenant. And what I mean is Jesus ends up getting the full penalty He ends up being cursed with death and being ripped to pieces, in a sense, on that cross because he identified with Israel, right? And so God did put this all on himself. And even the failure of his people, he had himself bear their punishment so that they wouldn't have to, so that he dies for our sins, raises for our justification, right? And now in Christ, all of us who are in him are saved by grace. We get his righteousness We never have to pass through those animals, just like Abram did it. That is how this gets fulfilled, right? That's how this gets fulfilled. Abram didn't have to walk through it as a man because God walked through it alone. But there still needed to be a man that walked through it too. So in Christ Jesus, in a single person, God and man walked through that path. And Jesus the man took the curse that humanity deserved. He took that curse upon himself so that in him we could henceforth be declared righteous and have salvation. Paul put it perfectly this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we would be declared righteous. We would be the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. And it's all here in Genesis 15. So in light of all of this, how should we live? 
Well, remember the point of the text. God keeps all of his promises, therefore we could trust him. But here's the thing. He doesn't do it in our timing. He does it in his timing. So you should live in such a way that you trust God. You could live free from the fear of death knowing that God has promised you eternal life if you're a true believer in Jesus. So you could tell the world about Jesus every day without the worry that you're going to lose the only life you have because this isn't the only life you have. And what, this life is nothing compared to what we're going to receive. So trust God. He has called us to a mission. Trust him. God is our shield. Great is our reward. Tell yourself that every single day and live accordingly. But as you live accordingly and as you tell yourself that, remember that the hard times are not accidental. They're under the sovereign hand of God. They're meant to grow us closer to God. They're meant to make us even more dependent. That's why Abram cried out to God, what about your promise? And God didn't smite him. God reassured him. Abram still had to wait 15 more years for Isaac and 400 more years for the land. But God's reassurance strengthened him nevertheless because God said it. And if God said it, we must believe it. So when you are tired and you're starting to doubt, go back to the word of God. Read the promises again and again. And then to help you, go back and read God's mighty acts that he did in the past again and again, repeatedly, to remind you of his faithfulness in the past. And then tell yourself, he's made these promises. He'll be faithful to us in the future. Don't forget it. Pray in light of his promises. Don't stop believing. Don't stop serving. Don't stop hoping. Don't stop uh, praying. God is going to keep all these promises. And you could take that to the bank. And how do I know that? How's this? How do I know? And how do you know this isn't just a, a, a preacher's rhetoric? It's because God put it all on himself alone. He knocked Abram out, and he walked through those animals alone. That's why you could take this to the bank. That's why you know he's going to keep his promises. He will do what he says he will do. And then finally, the last thing, continue to see Jesus everywhere in the Bible and marvel at him. He wasn't kidding when he said all scriptures about him. And the reason that it's all about him is so that you can understand his mission to save you. That's why it's all about him and for God's glory as well. So don't ever take it for granted. And please, don't hoard this good news of salvation in Christ. Don't hoard it to yourself, okay? Don't hoard it to yourself. Everyone needs to hear this. His salvation is not just for you. It came to you on its way to someone else. And when you got tagged, you're now it to go tell someone else, okay? So it's not just for us. We need to tell others about the gospel as often as we can. So may we do so by the power of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to glorify the Father. And if there's any unbeliever here or listening, just know this. I've already explained the gospel through this text. You're a sinner. You need righteousness outside of yourself. You also need someone to pay the penalty of you breaking God's covenant. That's all found in Jesus. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of you breaking covenant with God, and he earned perfect righteousness so that righteousness could be credited to you. And as it says, Abram believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So if you want that forgiveness of sins, and if you want that credited righteousness, believe on Jesus. Turn away from your sins. Believe on Jesus. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. If you have any questions about this, come find me. Come talk to me, and I'll gladly walk you through it. What we're going to do is we're going to close in prayer, and then you'll all be dismissed. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for you being God. And God, I just pray that 
as your people, we'll trust you more. You know, that sometimes you make us wait, and that's okay. You know what you're doing. And so, Lord, may we not forget that when we start getting impatient, that Abram had to wait 25 years for one part of the promise, 400 years for the other. Lord, it's been 2,000 years since you ascended into those clouds, and we're still waiting for you to descend back to the Mount of Olives and make everything right, Lord. Make us patient. Help us be patient. Help us trust you and depend on you and have us be obedient to the mission that you've given us because that's also tied with when you're going to return. So be with us, God. May we glorify you. And if there's anybody who doesn't know you, please save them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all this. Amen. Well, you're dismissed.